Good morning. Let us open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, verse 25 through 27. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. As we get started this morning, I need you to notice something very particular about these uh, verses. Notice with me how Paul begins in verse 25 by addressing husbands, husbands. But then it is as though he completely forgets about the husbands. It is something like this. Husbands, love your wives and now please move out of the way. So that I can tell you about real love. Move out of the way so that I can draw your attention to the one who is love incarnate. Namely, the Lord Jesus Christ. So yes, husbands, by all means, love your wives. But now, let us look to Christ. What I love about these verses is that Paul seems to get caught up in the love of Christ. So much that the husband takes a place in the background so that Christ may shine forth. And Paul doesn't say anything else about husbands until verse 28. This is something that I want to learn from the Apostle Paul. The holy art of getting caught up in the depths of gospel truth. I will say more about that at the end. For now, let me give you the main question we are considering together this morning. Why did Christ come into the world? Here's the answer. Christ came into the world because Christ loved the church. Christ loved the church. Once again, love is the main verb and the main theme we will be meditating upon together this morning. And just like last week, I will provide three adverbs that will help us see Christ's love for the church in a deeper way. So here's the first Adverb, Christ loved the church, past tense, letter A, particularly. Christ loved the church particularly or in a particular way. Consider with me once again, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why did the eternal, perfect, immutable Sovereign son of God come into the world and assume human flesh. This is the central question of all of human history. And here's the ultimate answer, which consists in four words. Christ loved the church. Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest theologians to ever live, put it this way. And I quote, nothing in human history had significance on its own. Christ's saving love 
was the center of all history and defined its meaning, end quote. In other words, apart from Christ, you cannot even understand human history. What this great theologian is getting at is that the saving work of Christ on earth is not and should not be understood as an isolated event. Rather, the saving work of Jesus is to be, be viewed as a historical manifestation of an eternal reality that will forever change the eternal destiny of millions upon millions of human beings. Christ Jesus came into this world for a very specific, divinely established purpose. He didn't just show up. In fact, the entire world, with all its history, past present and future revolves around this one man and his perfect life, his death and his resurrection. And what we see in that baby in Bethlehem is love made flesh. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Notice the particular nature of this love. Christ loved and gave himself up for something specific. Consider with me how Paul removes all ambiguity from our minds. The specificity of Paul's language is unmistakable. Christ broke into our human existence, into our human reality, seeking someone he knew. Seeking someone specific. And the good news is that we don't have to guess who that is. Paul says it. The church. The church. But isn't the church still being formed? How can Jesus come seeking a group of people that hadn't even been born yet? Well, here's the answer. The church that Jesus loves is his creation. The church Jesus loves is his creation. Remember what Jesus said to Peter? He said, I will build what? My church. I will build my church. Each of those five words could be examined in great detail. But instead, what I want to do is I want to show you from the Old Testament that the words of Jesus simply reflect what God has always done. It's nothing new. Turn to Isaiah chapter 43 in your Bibles. Isaiah chapter 43. And as you do so, I want you to think of Israel. God, out of his own will and good design, set his love upon a people called the Israelites. But God loved Israel before they were even a nation. Before they even had a name. God didn't create Israel and then loved them. God loved Israel, therefore he created them. That's amazing. God loved Israel, therefore he created them. God's love for Israel was the impulse that gave birth to the nation of Israel. Israel was created as a people because God loved them before they ever, ever were a people. And his love for Israel is without a doubt a particular love. In other words, God loved Israel in a way that no other nation experienced. Yes, 
God gave other nations the same rain, the same sun, the same fruits of the ground, but only Israel received his word. Only Israel had the oracles of God. Only Israel knew the way of salvation. God loved Israel in a particular way. So much so, in fact, that the Bible uses incredible language to describe the love of God for Israel. Some people might even find it shocking. And I want to read this to you from Isaiah 43, beginning in verse 1 through verse 7. But now, thus says the Lord, he who creates you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Did he ever say that to any other nation? You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I, be, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. Verse three, pay, pay close, close attention to verse three. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your savior. I give Egypt as your ransom. Kush and Seba in exchange for you. Why? Verse four, because you are precious in my eyes uh, and honored and I love you. I give men in return for you. Peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. William Gurnall, commenting on these verses, especially verse three, says this, and I quote, God so loved, so loves his saints that he makes nothing to give whole nations for their ransom. He ripped open the very womb of Egypt to save the life of Israel, his child, end quote. What is Gurnall referring to? He is referring to the fact that in order to save his people, Israel, his beloved people, God said to Moses back in Exodus chapter 11, about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, but not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel either man or beast. Why? That you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So in a very literal sense, and as Garnell pointed out, God did rip open the very womb of Egypt to save his people. God willingly gave up an entire nation for the sake of those whom he loved in order, to, in order to bring them to himself. The love of God for his people is of such intensity, of such power, that even if an entire nation or a powerful Pharaoh stand between him and those he loves, he destroys the ones standing in between, whether that is Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, you name it, anyone else. Even at a surface level, reading of the Old Testament will confirm the fact that all other nations existed for the sake of Israel, either for punishment or for blessing. Now, you may be wondering to yourself, well, 
What does this have to do with Jesus and his church? What does this have to do with Ephesians 5:25? It has everything to do with Jesus and the church. Brothers and sisters, this is precisely how Jesus loves his church. In the economy of God, nothing has changed. When Jesus came into this world, he came for a particular people, a people whom he loves called the church. But I want you to notice a staggering distinction in the old Testament. We read that God loved his people and gave up entire nations for them. In the new Testament, we read that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for them. But this is no surprise to those who have taken the time to read the old Testament carefully in Ezekiel chapter 34. And after giving severe words of condemnation to the shepherds of Israel for mistreating the people of Israel, we read in verses 11 and 12 for thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep. And I will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock. When he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So will I seek out my sheep less than 600 years later, a man by the name of Jesus showed up and said about himself, I am the good shepherd. I laid down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this, this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. There is no question, my brothers and sisters, that the Lord Jesus came for a people. He came for a particular people, but there is more in case you are not fully convinced. Consider with me the very name of the people that Jesus came to give himself for. What are they called? Grace community, that's a clue. Grace community, church, right? Consider the name of the people Jesus came to give himself for. The church, the church. The very name reveals the particular nature of the love of Christ. Once again, think with me for a moment of how God spoke to his people, how he referred to his people in the Old Testament. Through the prophet Isaiah, God said, listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. Did you get that? Whom I called. Let me repeat those words. Whom I called. Who called Israel? God called Israel. And then he refers to them as the people whom I called. What an important distinctive. Why is that an important distinctive? In the New Testament, every time we read the word church, we are being reminded of the exact same distinctive. Think about it with me. If you would have been a part of the early church and you had the New Testament in its original language, namely Greek, the word for church would be the word ekklesia. Ekklesia. Christ loved the ekklesia. Now the word ekklesia is made up of two other words. Ek and kaleo. Ek means out of, out of. So for instance, when you study the Bible and you want to understand the meaning of a text, what do you do? You do something called 
exegesis. What does that mean? You're drawing the meaning out of the words. You're trying to understand the meaning out of the words. Exegesis. Likewise, the word ecclesia begins with the preposition ek, out of. And then we need to add the word kaleo, which means called. So what does ecclesia mean? Out of plus called. Ecclesia means the called out ones. The called out ones. Imagine for a moment what the first century readers of the Greek New Testament would have experienced. Every time they read the New Testament and they encountered the word ecclesia, they inevitably were reminded of the very reason why they belonged to the church in the first place. They were among the called out ones. If we bring this back to Ephesians 5.25, we could read it thus. Christ loved his called out ones and gave himself up for them. My brothers and sisters, there is no greater reality than this. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, it is only because Jesus loved you particularly. Jesus called you out of the world and to himself. The hymn writer was exactly right when he exclaimed, what wondrous love is this? Oh, my soul. What wondrous love is this? Not only that, but the apostle Paul tells us that having set his love upon the church, the Lord Jesus gave himself for her. Jesus Christ died with the church on his mind. He died to rescue her from darkness. He died to represent the church before the father. He died to take upon himself the wrath of God that she deserved. He died to redeem his called out ones. He died for a purpose. He died as the head of his body. He died as a husband to his bride. He gave himself up for the church. One theologian said it very, very well. And I quote, Paul's description of Christ as the head and husband of his body and bride, the church assumes an organic, organic union such that when he dies, he dies united to his body and bride in a way that necessarily rules out other people or another organic unity, unless one wishes to entertain the thought of polygamy, end quote. The Lord is not a polygamist. The Lord Jesus is faithful to one and to one only, the church. So intimate indeed is Christ's union to his church that when the Lord Jesus, the resurrected Lord Jesus, appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus, remember what Jesus asked Saul? He said this, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? No, he said, why are you persecuting me? For all we know, for all we know, Saul was not persecuting Jesus. He was persecuting the church. Saul was imprisoning people. He was punishing people. He was approving the death of people. But these people, these believers were the body of Christ loved by him in a particular way. Therefore, persecution against them in the mind of Christ was an assault upon himself. Such is Christ's union with his church. Such is the love of Christ for his church. What happens to the church happens to Christ. Moreover, when Jesus said to the father in John chapter 17, verse four, 
I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He did not add, now, Father, let's see if it works. Or let's see who shows up. He didn't say any of that. In fact, just the sound of that is quite ridiculous. Jesus accomplished the work assigned to him by the Father in that through the giving up of himself, meaning through his death, he actually bought the church. Thus, he can say to his father, I accomplished the work that you gave me to do. When Paul charged the Ephesian elders to be faithful in their duties, this is how Paul said it. Pay attention. Pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Now, by way of illustration, consider the story of Jacob. Not Jacob Herbal, Jacob, the one in the Bible. Out of uh, Laban's two daughters, Jacob only wanted to marry which one? Rachel, not Leah, not Leah. And what did Jacob do? Well, Jacob worked seven years for Laban in order to obtain the right to marry Rachel. He worked those seven years for one specific woman to be his wife because the Bible says Jacob loved Rachel. And those seven years were the price that Jacob paid to marry a specific woman, not a random number of women or whoever would come. Likewise, Jesus gave his blood. Why? Because with his blood, he came to pay a price. A price for what? A price for a specific bride. And what did Jesus actually obtain with the prize that he paid? He obtained the church. He bought the church. And who is the church? The called out ones. My friends, is there any doubt that Jesus actually perfectly and eternally secured a people for himself called the church? No doubt. Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her particularly. The work is done. Samuel J. Stone was absolutely correct when he wrote from heaven, he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood, he bought her, and for her life, he died. Listen, my Christian friend, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, nothing should give you greater comfort in life than to know that Christ loves you personally, particularly. He doesn't love you randomly. Or even generally, Jesus loves you in a particular way and even to the point of death, death on a cross. When Jesus died and when he said it is finished, it is as though he also said he and she are mine. They are now my body. They are now my bride. They are now my church. And now you can say with the apostle Paul, I have been crucified with Christ and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And you can even join the children's choir if you want and sing with them with confidence. Jesus loves me. This I know. But not only did Christ love the church particularly, 
Christ is loving the church. Christ is loving the church transformationally, transformationally. You should have thought about wearing a jacket when I'm preaching. <laughs> I'm sweating quite a bit this morning. I'm just going to go ahead and take it off, if, if that's okay with you. I hope nobody notices. Transformationally, consider verse 26. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Let me point out that interestingly enough, the Greek preposition ek in the word ekklesia also indicates separation from separation from therefore embedded in the word ecclesia is the idea of separation from the world. Jesus loved the ecclesia and gave himself up for the ecclesia in order to separate the ecclesia from the world and to himself. And this is at the very heart of what Paul means by the word sanctify. Jesus died in order to set his people apart to make them distinct from the world. In other words, the Lord Jesus not only bought the church, but he's also beautifying the church. And this is indeed an amazing truth. If you have ever wondered why you are in the world, my Christian friend, here's the answer. You are here to be a little picture of Jesus to the world. He's transforming you so that you might bear his image to the entire world. This is what it means to be a Christian. But this leads me to my third and final adverb. So, the first one was Christ loved the church particularly. The second is transformationally. And number three, Christ will love the church. And here's a big word, teleologically. I wasn't kidding. Teleologically, not theologically, but teleologically. In verse 27, 27, we read this. That he might present her, meaning the church, to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the book of Leviticus, in the book of Leviticus, much is made of spots and blemishes. For instance, no priest, no priest of the line of Aaron who had a bodily blemish could offer a sacrifice to God. Any blemish on the part of the priest would profane my sanctuary, said the Lord. Moreover, any Israelite with any type of skin disease, such as leprosy, could not approach God due to his or her uncleanness. These were mostly described in the Bible as spots on the skin, which the priest had to examine very carefully. Neither were blemished animals allowed to be offered as sacrifices to God for it will not be acceptable for you said the Lord in Leviticus chapter 22. If you pay attention, every one of those descriptions in which spots or blemishes are mentioned, they all had one thing in common. They prevented either the priest, the person or the animal from being accepted before God spots, wrinkles or any such thing were not allowed in God's holy presence. We need to be fully aware of the following reality. We were all born with plenty of spots, wrinkles, and many such things. But whereas in the Old Testament, 
These spots and wrinkles and blemishes were references to visible signs of decadence and imperfection in the body. Our spots, our wrinkles, and our blemishes are references to an invisible decadence and imperfection of the soul. And the consequences are the same. These spots and these blemishes kept us from approaching a holy God. From Adam, we all inherited what we could call spiritual leprosy. And we were all condemned to live outside of the temple, away from the presence of the Lord. If there was anyone who understood the pain of isolation and rejection, indeed, were the lepers. They knew hopelessness better than anyone else. Brothers and sisters, this was our spiritual condition when we were born. We were lepers of the soul. Without Christ, without hope, without God in the world, which is amazing. Because these are the people Christ loved. And the power of his love is such that it can wash away the filth, remove the spots, smooth out the wrinkles, and erase the blemishes. Right now, we are in the process. Someday, the process will be completed. And this is what I mean when I say that Christ's love is teleological. Teleology has to do with the end goal. The telos of something is a reference to its intended end. The telos or end goal of the church is to be freed from all that which corrupts our worship and love for God. The love of Jesus for his church is teleological for it has a very defined end goal. What is the goal? The goal is for Jesus to have a perfectly beautiful bride that will worship and love him. How? As Psalms 29 verse 2 says, in the splendor of holiness. In the splendor of of holiness. I want to point out something quite unique about that Psalm, Psalm 29, verse 2. When you read it in the ESV, it has a footnote. That footnote indicates that there is another appropriate translation from the Hebrew, and is this worship the Lord in holy attire. That's very insightful. In the book of Exodus, chapter 28, the Lord instructs Moses to make holy garments. For his brother Aaron and his sons, all of whom were to serve as priests before the Lord. And then the Lord goes into very intricate detail to describe what these garments were to look like. In fact, so important and critical was this aspect of their priestly, priestly office that any lack or any mistake in their holy garments as they minister in the temple could lead to their very deaths. But the main purpose of these holy priestly garments is explicitly mentioned in Exodus 28, verse 2. To Moses, God says, you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. For glory and for beauty. Now, please, there is one more verse that we need to turn to. Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel chapter 16. You were in Isaiah, then Jeremiah, then Ezekiel chapter 16. I want to read beginning in verse 8. Here the Lord refers to himself as the bridegroom and Israel as his bride. But listen to what he says beginning in verse 8. Ezekiel 16 verse 8. This is the Lord speaking to his people, his bride. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the gate for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God. 
and you became mine. Verse 9, then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. Verse 10, I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shot you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrist and a chain on your neck. Verse 12, and I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Verse 13, thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because, you, because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. I love those words. Do you get the message? From the very beginning, the Lord has desired a people for his own possession that reflects who he is. The Lord has always desired a people who are both glorious and beautiful, but not being content with just requiring this from his people. He did the unthinkable. He himself came down from the highest heaven. He gathered his people and he clothed them in his own perfect righteousness. Why? Because Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might present her to himself in splendor. Such is the love of Christ for us. Now, let me conclude this. I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon that something that characterized the apostle Paul's writings is that he often seemed to have distracted himself by the beauty of the truth that he proclaimed. He was a man in love with gospel truth. So much so that he can begin talking about husbands and ends up giving us one of the most glorious expositions of the love of Christ for his church ever written. That was Paul. He was a man who was consumed and overwhelmed by the realities that transcended his own personal life. When you read Paul's writings in a book like Ephesians, you will often find him almost forgetting that he was in prison with his feet shackled and deprived of freedom. Why? Here's the answer. Paul was consumed and overwhelmed by something, something much, much greater. To put it in a very simple way, the love of Christ transcended all of Paul's earthly circumstances. All of them. All of them. So here's the question for us. Should not be the same for us. Should not the same be true of us. My dear brothers and sisters, if we are a people consumed, truly consumed and overwhelmed by the love of God for us in Christ, it would make it almost impossible for us to become consumed and overwhelmed by anything else in this world. So I need to ask you a sincere question. If we were a people consumed and overwhelmed by the eternal love of Christ, could we ever come to the point of dividing ourselves over anything? And could not our very divisions prove that what consumes and overwhelms us is the self rather than the Lord of glory and his love for us demonstrated upon the cross? 
Please take time to think on that. And let me finish with this. I leave you with these words. The biggest threat to gospel unity is not circumstantial adversity, but gospel forgetfulness. It is because we stop focusing on the love of Christ that we divide ourselves. This is the case because nothing found in this world can destroy the realities and the promises that are ours in Christ Jesus. So the invitation today is simple. Let us abide in Christ's love for us. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for reminding us of the love of Christ. And I know that this sermon was uh, not perfect by any means. And uh, things were left unsaid. But I pray that you will take what was said and apply it to our hearts. Make us more like the Lord Jesus. Help us to abide in his love. Help us, Father, to focus upon the particular love of Christ for us, the transformational love of Christ for us, and the teleological love of Christ for us, the love that will transform us until the very end when we are finally united with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all these things we pray in his name. Amen.